Welcome to this gift podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. The stock market has been on a wild ride. The U.S. government was partially shut down for more than a month, and recession worries are impossible to shake. So 2019 should be a terrible year for the travel industry, right? Wrong, according to our experts, Skift Senior Research Analysts Rebecca Stone and Seth Borgo. In fact, they insist there's room for optimism in the coming year. A few reasons why. Consumer confidence is high. U.S. corporations are spending on capital projects. Airline earnings have been largely positive, And international markets are growing, albeit at a slower pace. I'm your host, Hannah Sampson. And on today's episode of the Skift Podcast, we're talking about the economic outlook for travel in 2019. The good signs, the risks, and the reasons you shouldn't panic. Our conversation took the form of a Skift call in mid-January, featuring Rebecca, Seth, and Skift executive editor Dennis Shaw. If you want to check out the slides they mention, go to skift.com slash outlook dash slides. And the call took place before the government shutdown ended. So bear that in mind when you hear references to that situation. Of course, another could be just weeks away. Here's the discussion. Dennis kicked it off. Just by way of introduction, I wanted to put the discussion into a little context. The smart money is saying that the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are fine and that we'll see growth in 2019, albeit at a slower pace than last year. But as just about everyone will acknowledge, there are some warning signs too, plenty of them. Just take a look at Delta Airlines. On January 3rd, Delta cut its revenue forecast for the fourth quarter, citing weakness when trying to raise fares. Delta's stock that day had its biggest decline in about six years, and that triggered a sell-off at other airlines. Well, Delta reported its earnings yesterday, and uh, indeed, its revenue forecast wasn't robust. In addition, the airline let it be known that it's probably going to take a $25 million hit uh, in revenue this month because of the partial U.S. government shutdown which uh, doesn't help things at all. On the other hand, United Airlines uh, reported earnings today and beat analysts' uh, expectations on both uh, revenue and profit for the fourth quarter, so it's clearly not a one-size-fits-all situation. Also in January, Apple, uh, one of the largest public companies in the world, uh, cut its quarterly sales forecast for the first time in 14 years, citing pressure from a slowing uh, Chinese economy and lackluster iPhone sales. Apple stock fell 10% the next day and took other major stock markets with it, exacerbating fears about a tumultuous political climate, including fears about a U.S.-China trade war, U.S. Federal Reserve policies, and a slowing global economy. Then again, stock market performance is often considered a leading indicator of future economic performance. If that's so, is this optimism about the economy's uh, direction really warranted? Well, I'll let Seth um, and Rebecca shed some light on this. Uh, We'll go through the rest of the slides, um, which are going to be uploaded to skiff.com directly after the call finishes today. And we'll take some questions at the end uh, after the slides. Uh, Next slide, please. And I'll turn this over to Seth. Uh, Thanks, Dennis. I think we want to start by saying, you know, how will travel shape up in 2019? And that will, of course, depend a lot on how the economy looks this year. Those two are very tightly linked. And so 
I thought we'd start by examining the broad economy from three angles. And in the U.S., we want to start with two of those, look at the state of both the consumer and U.S. businesses. Then I'll turn over to my colleague, Rebecca, to talk about the international economic outlook. So consumer spending makes up nearly 70% of U.S. GDP. To understand, really understand how the economy is acting, this is as good a place as any to get started. And in short, we would say that the U.S. consumer is quite healthy. The unemployment rate is at its lowest level since 1969, and more Americans are still entering the workforce. One of the challenges for consumer spending has been low wage growth, but it seems as if that might finally be turned in recent months. Certainly, if the job market stays this tight, one would expect wages need to rise somewhat. And that means more cash coming in the door for consumers. The other part of the equation is how much do consumers save versus how much do they spend. And here, consumer confidence is a good leading indicator. It's quite high. In fact, near record levels for this expansion. Debt levels admittedly are a concern, but when we looked at the data, they've been steadily falling since 2008. And overall, we expect this should leave consumers better off this year versus last year, and that in turn should power leisure spending. This grown, the growing preference for experiences over objects leaves travel really well positioned to capture a growing piece of the consumer spending pie. That, of course, is if people get their tax refunds this year. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, Dennis, that's a great point, and it's a real worry of ours. I would respond and say that we can really only analyze the internal fundamentals of the consumer. And when we look into those, they seem to be in a good position to spend on travel. Certainly, external unexpected shocks could derail these plans. I can't predict if and when the government shutdown will end. But, uh, you know, it is worthwhile mentioning that for many Americans, their tax refund is one of the biggest sources of cash for the entire year. So delaying that paycheck would probably delay travel plans. But for now, the IRS has unpaid but has committed to paying out refunds. Let's, um, let's move on to the next slide. And in this one, we're going to look at U.S. corporations. Rebecca is going to discuss this later in our presentation, but business travel is a very significant chunk of dollars for the industry. And here, while the U.S. consumer is flashing a green light, I would describe corporates as somewhat yellow. But importantly, yellow is not a red light. So let's talk about the puts and takes here. On the plus column, profits are at record highs. Growth has been strong, and that's a function of both rise in sales that's likely to recur in 2019, but also from one-time items that are unlikely to recur. Think of the U.S. tax cut. That's a one-time item. There are other signs of business optimism as well. For instance, fixed capital expenditures, which are on the rise. So that means things like corporations spending millions, if not billions of dollars to build new headquarters or to reinvest, and in some cases actually totally rebuild their tech stacks. These are strong signals of confidence because, you know, these are big projects with long payback periods. And so if you're an executive who thinks a recession is coming immediately, you'd be very unlikely to undertake that project. It does speak to some optimism. But on the other hand, there, there are some pockets of weakness, which we should be aware of. Uh, with interest rates on the rise, corporate debt could become a burden, and that would lead to curtailed spending. You can read our research report for more info on those details, but in some, interest rates are still low enough that we don't see this as a major near-term hurdle for corporations. Net-net, corporate strength bodes well for business travel spending, right? Because it means that companies can invest in holding conferences. They can send their salespeople abroad and domestically, and they're willing to open, you know, quote-unquote, HQ2s, which means you've got to shuttle those, trap, those executives back and forth from the west to the east coast. It's all good for the travel business. Um, if, you, if we move on onto the next slide, what I wanted to talk about here was what's going on with uh, stock market headlines and are they a concern? I know that you know, Dennis mentioned in his introduction, you know, is this a leading indicator? And there are certainly a lot of worries and, and Twitter rants and, and headlines that, that could scare you. We saw stocks plummet at the end of last year as we were uh, building this report. So it certainly made us uh, pay attention. 
but we're not ready to sweat the stock market concerns yet, just yet. I put on this chart here, um, on this right-hand side here, two charts that really caught my eye. On the top, it shows the Purchase and Managers Index. That's what's in black versus the S&P 500, a broad index uh, gauge of stocks on blue. Is there a danger, though, with all this negative press and negative headlines that we could talk ourselves into a recession? Well, I, I guess, yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at here, Dennis. You know, there is certainly like a wealth effect where if markets decline, then individual investors feel less wealthy and they curtail their spending and it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I guess what I'm trying to show here is that, look, this, this black line is the purchase and managers index. And what you do to create that index is you have a monthly survey of, of like it says, purchase and managers. Those are people in charge of forward planning in their businesses. And they're some of the most plugged in roles in any organization. So we go out, we survey them. Hey, are you seeing new orders? Are you seeing strong customer demand? Are you hiring, et cetera? It's one of the best indicators of leading indicators for economic health that we look at. And in surveying them, a score of 50 plus indicates expansion and less than 50 is a contraction. And so you can see we're still in expansionary territory. The blue line is, of course, the S&P 500, and it was really down. It's, it's still down, and it was down for the year last year. But on this bottom chart in blue, you can actually see the difference between the divergence between uh, purchasing managers and stock markets. And it's the highest divergence in 25 years. So basically, purchasing managers, which are Main Street businesses, they're telling us something different from Wall Street investors. PMIs are saying that businesses are still expanding, but at a slower pace. The market clearly heard something else. Just bear in mind that sometimes the market can be spooked and send a false signal. Maybe growth is slowing a bit, but this feels like an overreaction in an environment that is still highly likely to be positive growth. So I guess really, you know, like to just answer this question, do we worry about stock market headlines? Our answer is not yet, not now. We're focused on the fundamentals and we're not going to worry about talking ourselves into a recession or fixating on daily, weekly, or monthly returns. What we care about is will consumers and businesses spend and continue to spend on travel? And for 2019, we expect the answer will be yes. So now I'll turn it over to Rebecca to discuss some of the international trends. Yeah, so turn to the next slide. Perhaps now would be a good time to turn to international markets where we are seeing solid growth still. Economic growth in terms of real GDP has been good and particularly strong for emerging and developing economies. Obviously, expectations for 2019 have been reined in quite a bit versus earlier in the year in 2018, with advanced economies expected to decelerate and for growth in emerging and developing economies to ease a bit. But this is just relative to the strong growth we have been seeing the past couple years. In advanced economies in particular, the euro area is expected to see economic performance moderate in 2019, with particular decelerations in Spain and Italy. In the UK, growth is likely to continue to be stunted as a result of Brexit uncertainty, which we all know about. In emerging and developing economies, on the other hand, China's growth is set to slow. Plus, you have that potential added negative of U.S. trade tariffs causing issues, but growth is still going to remain very high. And then in India, things continue to be very strong there. Elsewhere in emerging markets, we'll likely see ongoing recoveries just slightly more at ease versus 2018. Obviously, there's quite a bit amount of mounting uncertainty internationally. Financial conditions are tightening, trade conditions may worsen, geopolitical tensions are heightening, and then the U.S. dollar has been strengthening, which makes it tougher for international travelers to use their own currencies to travel. These are all issues that we can't just ignore as we trudge forward into 2019. But pulling everything together, just because we have an easing of growth doesn't mean growth won't be solid. We'll still likely see strength and growth in emerging and developing economies 
economies. And while advanced economies will slow somewhat, we should see overall global growth essentially in line with 2018. Turning to the next slide, pulling together our expectations for the U.S. as well as for international markets, what does this mean for travel? Keep in mind that travel is strongly correlated with economic growth. And given our expectations of solid global growth at just under 4% in 2019, this should bode well for travel, with a few caveats. International arrivals will still likely reach an all-time high in 2019, and travel and tourism will continue to contribute positively to global GDP. With ongoing recoveries, rising incomes, and economic growth globally, we expect people to continue to choose travel for their discretionary spend after the basics have been met. One potential wild card is something that I've just mentioned. It's that U.S. dollar, which has been strengthening against most major currencies until perhaps very recently with the government shutdown. Weaker foreign currencies might discourage international travel to markets such as the U.S., as foreign travelers would have to spend more to purchase the same amount of goods. Nevertheless, leisure, leisure travel should be solid in 2019. However, when it comes to business travel, the Global Business Travel Association recently reined in expectations for business travel activity after a very solid 2018. Some of the stimulus we saw in 2018 may lead to slower economic growth in 2019. Plus, with increases in trade tariffs reducing economic activity, we're likely to see some deceleration here. The GBTA also cited rising interest rates in the U.S., maturing business cycles in developed markets, and rising budget deficits in developing and emerging markets, increasing protectionism, all of these factors that could reduce economic activity, and that means business travel spend as a result. Regardless, we're still expecting growth, as you can see in that chart on the right, just at a slower pace. Now, we think it would be helpful to take a look at some of the key travel sectors and how things should play out in 2019, including airlines, hotels, OTAs, or online travel agencies and cruise lines. I'll turn it back over to Seth to talk about the airlines. Great. So we're just moving forward. We're on slide eight now, and we're going to talk about some of the different sectors in travel. And I thought I would kick it out by talking about airlines, because 2018 was a very strong year for airlines. There were a lot of concerns to start the year, oil prices and political instability at the forefront of those. But ultimately, we really did see aggregate revenue and profit growth. So based on data from IATA, that's the, uh, from the industry trade group, we expect that for full year of 2018, globally, airlines will generate $564 billion of passenger revenue and $606 billion in 2019. So that's a 7% growth rate for next year. And also, uh, you know, we got to promote our own stuff here a little bit, but we just launched our own proprietary skip research estimates for the U.S. airline market, not global, but for the U.S. We expect in the U.S. passenger revenue of $171 billion in 2019. That's a 2.6% growth rate. There are ultimately really two factors driving airline revenues. So number one is passenger growth. This is very macro in nature. So think one, trade ties are drawn us closer together, and two, as the world gets wealthier, travel is one of the ultimate luxuries to spend on. And this, as you can imagine, is a long-term upward trend. We expect that passenger volumes will continue to rise for the foreseeable future. They increased really nicely in the U.S., up 4.5% last year, and in Europe, up about 6.5% last year. But the biggest gains in passengers, by far, were and will continue to be in Asia, which was up 8.5% in passenger volume last year. The second part of the equation, though, is price and power, and that's a lot trickier. 2018 was actually a pretty positive year for airlines there, but it varied very much by region. We think the U.S. did better than most other geographies on this front. So one of the big things driving pricing decisions is, 
is what we call load factors, which is basically just a really fancy way of saying occupancy for airlines. How many seats were filled versus how many were available? Too, much, too many seats and no surprise, prices fall. So supporting the airline industry is that load factors have been increasing across the globe for the last few years. And based on the data we have for 2018, they were a bit over 82% this year, and that was up half a percentage point. They increased in every region except for the Middle East and LATAM, which, which honestly account for a small amount of global airline capacity. And we are, we're looking for load factors to rise again next year. Another factor in ticket prices is, is actually oil prices. And counterintuitively, it actually helped a lot last year. As management teams pushed up ticket prices, to offset the margin costs from higher fuel prices. And so ironically, in 2019, when oil prices seem likely to go back down, we actually think ticket prices may fall. The drop in oil prices should give the airlines some margin, but we expect that margin will be competed away through lower prices. When we're looking at airlines, we do expect competition to remain intense, with low-cost and ultra-low-cost carriers especially pushing hard to launch new routes and take market share. We're closely watching what happens in long-distance routes, like transatlantic flights. And if low-cost carriers can get a foothold there, they've struggled and tried for the past few years, maybe this will be their year. We also expect to see wage pressures on the bottom line as pilot shortages get worse. So overall, we're looking for another positive revenue environment for airlines last year, underpinned by our economic outlook and led by passenger volumes, but potentially with some modest pressure on prices and profit margins. Uh, back to you, Rebecca, to talk about hotels. Yeah, so when it comes to hotels, the industry definitely benefited in 2018 from corporate tax reform in the U.S. and international markets continuing to show strong economic growth, either via recoveries or ongoing development. Based on our estimates, hotel revenues reached around $530 billion and global hotel inventory reached around 17.2 million rooms. Now, turning to 2019, we expect ongoing solid fundamentals with various puts and takes, resulting in essentially similar overall growth rates. The management teams of the major public hotel companies were relatively optimistic on 2019 during their third quarter earnings calls, and the companies still seem focused on developing out their pipelines with no signs of halting development or conversions. International market growth will likely continue to outpace that of the U.S., but if you're catching on to the trend just at a a slower pace than last year, key markets in Europe, Africa, the Middle East likely to continue to recover, and China is expected to show strong growth, albeit at a lower pace. The U.S. US should still um, see some benefit from lower supply growth given higher construction costs and interest rates so that um, but they but the US may soften a bit given some of the issues that we've been discussing during this call one key thing here will be if we do see that slower business travel activity as forecasted by the GBTA. This will definitely impact hotel performance given business travelers are a key component of hotel demand but all in all a steady as she goes sort of year ahead. Um, back to you Seth on the OTAs. All right, so if you're an online travel agency, it's a bit of a funny place to be in if you're looking at the 2019, right? Because on the one hand, booked room night growth is decelerated. It's gone from strong double-digit growth in 2017, think like, and 2016, think like 20 and 30% growth, to the high teens in the late part, last part of 2017 and early 2018, and we're now hitting the low teens growth rate. So Booking.com has guided to 11% room night growth in Q4 2018. But on the other hand, we estimate that collective gross bookings at the two leading sites, and that's Booking and Expedia, will be $192 billion in 2018, and some analysts see global revenues growing at 12%. And that translates to one of the fastest growth rates in all of travel. That's almost three times global GDP. So it really all depends if you're a glasses half full or glass, glasses half empty kind of person. 
For sure, though, the trend towards online bookings and e-commerce is secular in nature, and it will continue again this year. In the U.S., 46% of travel arrangements are done online, well above the baseline of just 7% for all service businesses. And again, this presents a half-full versus half-empty scenario. On the one hand, travel got there first and made many of the oftentimes painful adjustments that the rest of the U.S. retail landscape is going to go through this year. So we as an industry, we got out of the way early. But of course, the flip side is that in the U.S., e-commerce penetration rate is already very high, and it leaves less room for growth in developed markets this year. But naturally, the e-commerce penetration rate is not that high outside of the U.S. and Europe, and it shouldn't be a surprise to you that that's where a lot of the growth is going to be this year. India and China especially are both huge growth markets, and we expect to see a lot of book inside competition, both homegrown and from global corporates, to win in those markets this year. In addition to emerging markets powering growth, a lot of booking sites are looking for new product lines to launch. And they're moving from being specialist websites to full trip platforms. That means adding alternative accommodations, tours and activities, restaurants, and more. This is an investment that many companies are making their long-term health, but honestly, they may not be fully ready for prime time this year. Depends on the product. Alternative accommodations are certainly in the spotlight. Tours and activities need a little more time. One of our focuses when analyzing OTAs and looking forward to next year will be margins. So starting at the top is commissions. As booking sites offer offerings overlap, it could really put pressure on commissions and in turn on margins. So consider that you know, Airbnb charges a 4% host fee and a 10% guest fee. Booking.com, somewhere around 16% property fee. And in aggregate, those tend to be the same, but the difference matters for the host. A host on Airbnb pays a lot less. And as there becomes more overlap, Booking.com now sells alternative accommodations, and Airbnb now sells some hotel rooms, they might compete away each other's margins. We're also watching on the commission front the Expedia and Marriott negotiations, which might put pressure on commissions, but perhaps we don't need to draw such big implications from that negotiation because Marriott has a really unique scale advantage that mom and pop hotels can't replicate. The other big margin question for online travel agencies is ad budgets. They're some of the largest advertisers in the world with Expedia and Book and Holdings each spending nearly $8 billion annually in advertising. But despite that large dollar figure, ad efficiency is declining by our measures down sometimes 15% or more. So new ad dollars are not buying as many bookings as they used to. And that's a result of increased competition and crowded ad auctions. Uh, towards the end of 2018, after intense competition, digital advertising spend seems to have been rationalized somewhat. That's to the benefit of expedient booking and to the harm of some of the meta search sites like Trivago. But we're still watching closely to see what plays out. There could also be some other pressions on margins, such as offline brand advertising instead of digital advertising and tech builds. And now, on either event, 2019 should be a really interesting year with a lot of exciting developments for the OTAs. Uh, Rebecca, why don't you uh, finish us off by talking about cruises? Yeah, so when it comes to the cruise industry, while demand has been growing, total passengers have grown on average more than 5% over the past five years. Challenges definitely creeped up during 2018. Obviously, the strengthening U.S. dollar made it more expensive for international passengers to travel. There were pricing pressures in the Caribbean due to overcapacity. And 2017 hurricane-related booking impacts that impacted 2018 bookings. In addition, China continues to be a challenging market due to differences in demand there. But turning ahead, the management teams of the three companies are all very positive looking into 2019. Royal Caribbean and Norwegian both noted that bookings for 2019 are ahead of last year in terms of occupancy and pricing during their third quarter earnings calls. And Carnival Management noted 
on the fourth their fourth quarter earnings call no signs of softening demand, but they did spook investors somewhat with some wariness on their European brands, given some of the economic uncertainty there. Nevertheless, we think Carnival management is likely demonstrating some conservatism. Based on Seth's remarks earlier, you can see the U.S. consumer remains healthy. Caribbean capacity issues should abate this year, and pricing appears solid. Now, China will likely remain a challenge as the cruise companies continue to navigate the right strategy in that market. But nevertheless, it's a small percentage of major companies' overall deployments and shouldn't be a major impact to bottom-line performance. All in all, because of the long booking window— A lot of cruises for 2019 are already on the books at solid prices. And given the cruise industry's relative attractive value proposition as a vacation option for travelers, cruise should contribute positively to leisure travel in 2019. So I guess wrapping things up here and turning to the next slide... You've likely picked up that there are definitely some potential risks during this call, with one of the key risks being, are we going to have a recession this year? And we admit any combination of heightened trade tensions, natural disasters, geopolitical unrest, a prolonged U.S. government shutdown may indeed lead to a contraction in the economy and, as a result, um, result in significant weakness in travel. Nevertheless... So long as key indicators remain positive and a negative shock to the global economic system doesn't occur, we should be in for another year of solid growth. Middle classes around the world continue to develop. People increasingly want to travel to learn about new cultures, and businesses continue to want to expand through international collaboration and investment. All of this bodes well for travel. There are some other areas that we're thinking about here at Skift um, when it comes to the travel industry in 2019. Technological investment, how well travel companies are using technology to improve back office operations, but enhancing guest experiences. Sustainable tourism, how destinations are using travel to help economies grow. And emerging markets, how these consumers and corporates are looking to new markets as places to which they should travel or expand operations and investment. It's these advancements, investments, strategic initiatives that companies in the travel industry are making that make us excited and look forward to what's to come for the travel industry in 2019. And with that, I think we will begin the Q&A portion of the call. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, So here's one question that came in. Uh, I guess this would be for Seth. Uh, In slide eight, you mentioned full trip platforms. I guess you were talking about full service uh, travel platforms. What are some examples of these? Well, I think the examples are, are the big guys. It's Expedia and it's Booking.com. I think I'm, I'm thinking here of Booking.com, and, and you know this, Dennis, of how they were traditionally hotel experts, and they were really focused on just doing that one vertical well. And recently, they've moved other parts of their business, such as airlines and alternative accommodations, onto not just their platform, but onto the main homepage. We know they're experimenting with Tours and activities, we know they've done some acquisitions. They're looking to do that. I think of Expedia 2 becoming more uh, full service. Airbnb now has restaurant reservations. They have tours and activities, plus alternative accommodations. And they've signed deals with a number of distribution systems to put some boutique hotels on the platform. And so all of a sudden, even though you think, okay, well, Expedia really did a lot of airfare. You know, in the beginning, Booking.com did a lot of hotels. And Airbnb did a lot of alternative accommodations. And you think you know the niches. And you look at it today, and suddenly there's a lot more convergence. 
that's kind of what I'm thinking of. Right. Here's another question, and, and perhaps both you, both of you might be able to chime in on this one. Uh, Rebecca, you talked a lot about hotels, and Seth, you talked about airlines. So um, for hotels, uh, Rebecca, what, what kind of technology are you seeing hotels uh, prior, prioritizing in 2019? And same for you, uh, for Seth, with airlines. Why don't you go first, Rebecca? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the key thing that hotels are really thinking about right now is how to right-size their sort of their hotel tech stacks. We're seeing ongoing consolidation in the way they think about PMS systems and revenue management systems and sort of catching up with the times here. I think hotels are still navigating the best way to have integrated technology all throughout their hotels. And so navigating that, I think, will be an ongoing source of, of focus for them. I think maybe something else that, that we, we sort of see perhaps out of uh, you know, the likes of Marriott and things like that is the loyalty programs and the way we can sort of use technology to better personalize experience for guests. So th- those are the two key things that I'm paying attention to when it comes to hotels this year. Uh, on the airline side, I would love to just jump on that last point you said about um, personalization. That's going to be a really big focus for airlines. It has been and will continue to be, right? I mean, at the airline business model, you're seeing it change. Uh, they're unbundling fares, they're unbundling services, and they're offering all these different, they call them ancillaries. But all this stuff you can, you can upsell. Hey, do you want an extra leg room, priority board in, a nice lounge access, and you can sell those individually. They've managed to unbundle those fares, but I think they've struggled to really sell them and target them properly. And you're seeing the airlines put a lot of time and money, and the industry as a whole rebuilding a lot of their infrastructure. I don't want to, you know, bore you. Well, you know, the new distribution capability is a big part of that. But airlines are spending a lot of time, a lot of focus, a lot of tech on being able to properly sell you these ancillaries and being able to the next step to track you to personalize to personalize their offers in a really uh, a meaningful way that will drive sales. I mean, ancillaries are now almost 10% of global airline revenues, and that's only going to grow. So I think that's a big focus. You're also seeing stuff on the airline side. Um, this is more uh, very futuristic stuff, but certainly we've seen airlines pilot stuff with um, facial recognition at the airports and kind of making the airport and the check-in experience a little more pleasant. No one really enjoys going... Well, I do, but not many people enjoy going to the airport and trying to make that experience a little nicer. You're seeing a lot of tech spend there. Uh, the next question is, um, are there, do we have any estimates for growth in alternative accommodations, namely Airbnb? Yeah, so I guess um, pulling up our Airbnb model, I think um, they're, they're in terms of overall revenue expectations, we are forecasting $6.2 billion in terms of revenue in 2019, and that's based on a buildup of alternative accommodations, boutique hotels, and experiences. Um, I know Airbnb recently released some data that indicated that in the first quarter they've reached 500 million guest arrivals in the history of the company. So there's something to be said for ongoing growth there. I think the main thing that I'm thinking about when it comes to Airbnb is really how they continue to navigate the ongoing regulatory environment. It's country by country or state by state and city by city in some cases. So any sort of restriction there would obviously be a risk to our model. And I'm happy to walk through um, if there's more specific questions offline about the, the more details of our model as well. Rebecca, I'm glad you had an Airbnb model right there in your pocket. Pretty cool. Uh, the next question is, what technologies uh, do you think will disrupt the travel industry in the next two to three years? Um, and what would their economic impact be for the overall travel industry? 
And there's a related question about, uh, you know, uh, personalization. So that fits right into that question as well. Um, artificial intelligence. Um, what do you think, Seth? Well, I, I'm now a little bit afraid of sounding like a broken record, but I would go back to that, that whole idea of, of personalization, of understanding your customers and being able to give them a specific targeted offer. That's really going to be really crucial for the industry. That ties into a lot of the, the big data and number crunching stuff that we're talking about. I think that's an important technology. And I think it's more than just being able to identify the customer based on their browse and shop and whatever behaviors you have. But it's also being able to understand uh, what mood they're in. Not, not what mood, but what, what behavior they're in. You know, one customer has a business traveler hat and they have a, a parent hat. And what context are they traveling under and what can you offer them? I think being able to, to analyze those big data sets with artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, is really important. And realistically possible within the next few years, importantly. I also think there's a lot of good technology that is not revolutionary stuff, but it's just doing low-hanging fruit in terms of connectivity that has not existed before. I mean, I know I looked at some of the global distribution systems. I know we've looked at the vacation rental stack and the hotel tech stack. And some of those can be, um, well, I want to be nice and polite. They can be a little, a little outdated sometimes. And I think they could certainly use more than just a fresh coat of paint and really a rethink. And you're going to see a lot of companies and a lot of tech solutions trying to, to, to fix that. And so maybe that doesn't impact the, uh, the top line so much. I think people are still going to travel, but it maybe rejiggers uh, your margins in terms of where that margin goes, in terms of which distributors and which uh, vendors get that money. And, it, and it, it changes some of that profile a little bit. Uh, do you have anything you want to add, Rebecca? Yeah, I guess what I would just say is what Seth has touched on has been really good. And the way I would sort of like frame it would be the travel industry is still navigating basically how to right size technology. Another key issue I see there is it, with this whole personalization thing is navigating privacy. And that's a key risk that a lot of these companies are going to have to think about how they deal with GDPR, et cetera. But I guess in terms of disruption, I think the major thing that I'm thinking about is the way technology companies can so easily make things easier, whereas the hospitality and the airline industry are sort of backtracking, starting as a service uh, company and then transitioning to, to much more tech-focused um, companies. And the likes of Google and Amazon, and Seth can talk more to this, would be some ways that we might see some more disruption. Well, actually, I was going to add this, and I just saw a question come in from uh, Tony Reid about blockchain, and I was going to add my controversial opinion in terms of what technology will not disrupt the industry <laughs> in the next two to three years, and that would have been my answer of blockchain. And I have to say I'm a skeptic. Um, it's easy to, easy to be a skeptic after the crash in, in uh, I guess, Bitcoin prices, but, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I'm just somewhat concerned about whether that technology is... Um, is really as revolutionary as people think it is going to be. I mean, I know it sounds sexy, and there is, don't get me wrong, there is a huge need to redesign and rethink and improve how distribution is done and how the ecosystem talks with each other. I just don't necessarily, uh, someone's going to come at me after this, right? But I don't understand why you can't That's do it. That's why we're here. Why you can't do it in a centralized way. What the true benefit of a decentralized way of talking is, as opposed to saying like, yeah, we need a smart, modern means of communication and distribution. I don't know if blockchain truly offers that over a really smart tech company like a Google or, or um, you know, some as of yet unnamed or unfounded company, why you can't, you know, 
what the benefit is there. So it's uh, a good question, and you know you can definitely uh, you can definitely come back at me either in the comments here or, or wherever and disagree, and I'd love to hear your thoughts there. But that's my my take. There'll be plenty of more talk about that this year. Uh, well, that's a wrap. Uh, thanks, Rebecca and Seth and everyone on the call. As I said before, the slides are going to be posted momentarily in the Skiff call post on skiff.com. Uh, and remember, if you're interested in subscribing to Skiff Research Plug Plug, which just released a market size report on the U.S. airline sector, go to research.skiff.com or you can e email our Daniel Calabrese at dc at skiff.com. Thanks, everyone. If you enjoy conversations like this one, consider attending one of our live events. Skift Forum Europe is the next one, coming up April 30th in London. Skift Forum Asia is right behind that on May 27th in Singapore, followed by Skift Tech Forum June 27th in San Francisco. For more information and to get tickets, go to forum.skift.com. This show was produced by Ben Glowey, who can be found on Twitter at visible underscore sound. And assistant editor Sarah Enlo Snyder provided additional support. To subscribe to this podcast, search for Skift on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a comment to help other listeners find us. Past episodes and a link to subscribe are online at podcast.skift.com. And this has been the Skift Podcast. Thanks for listening.